Welcome to Wikibytes, a podcast to provide you with small and digestible bites of useless yet somewhat useful information from the depths of Wikipedia. Sit back and enjoy the content. Episode 21, Unit 731, Part 3, Prisoners and Victims. In 2002, Shangdi, China, the site of the plague flea bombing, held an international symposium on the crimes of bacteriological warfare, which estimated that the number of people slaughtered by the Imperial Japanese Army germ warfare and other human experiments was around 580,000 people. The American historian Sheldon H. Harris states that over 200,000 died. In addition to the Chinese casualties, 700 Japanese troops in Zhejiang were also killed by their own biological weapons while attempting to unleash the biological agent, indicating serious issues with distribution. At least 3,000 men, women and children were subjected to Unit 731 experimentation conducted at the Pingfang camp alone, not including victims from other medical experimentation sites. Although 3,000 internal victims is the widely accepted figure in the literature, former unit member Okawa Fukamatsu refuted it in a video interview. He stated that there were at least over 10,000 victims of internal experiments at the unit and that he himself vivisected thousands. The majority of victims were Chinese, with a lesser percentage being Russian, Mongolian and Korean. They may have also included a small number of European, American, Indian, Australian and New Zealander prisoners of war. It has been documented that the victims were generally political descendants, communist sympathisers, ordinary criminals, impoverished civilians and the mentally disabled. No one who entered Unit 731 came out alive. Prisoners were usually received into Unit 731 at night in motor vehicles painted black with a ventilation hole but no windows. The vehicle would pull up at the main gates and one of the drivers would go to the guard room and report to the guard. That guard would then telephone to the special team in the inner prison. Then, the prisoners would be transported through a secret tunnel dug under the facade of the central building to the inner prisons. One of the prisons housed women and children, while the other prison housed men. Once at the inner prison, technicians would take samples of the prisoners' blood and stool, test their kidney function, and collect other physical data. Once deemed healthy and fit for experimentation, prisoners lost their names and were given a three-digit number, which they retained until their death. Whenever prisoners died after the experiments that they had been subjected to, a clerk of the 1st Division struck their numbers off an index card and took the deceased prisoners' manacles to be put on new arrivals to the prison. Prisoners were repeatedly reused for experiments as long as they were healthy enough. The average life expectancy of a prisoner once they had entered the unit was two months. Some prisoners were alive in the unit for over 12 months and many female prisoners gave birth in the unit. The prison cells had wooden floors and a squat toilet in each. There was space between the outer walls of the cells and the outer walls of the prison, enabling the guards to walk behind the cells. Each cell door had a small window in it. Chief of the Personnel Division of the Kwangtung Army Headquarters, Tamura Tadashi, testified that when he was shown the inner prison, he looked into the cells and saw living people in chains. Some moved around. Others were lying on the bare floor and were in a very sick and helpless position. The inner prison was a highly secured building, complete with cast iron doors. 
No one could enter without special permits and an ID pass with a photograph, and the entry-exit times were recorded. The special team worked in these two inner prison buildings. This team wore white overall suits, army hats, rubber boots, and pistols strapped to their sides. Destruction of Evidence With the coming of the Red Army in August 1945, the unit had to abandon their work in haste. Ministries in Tokyo ordered the destruction of all incriminating materials, including those in Ping Fang. Potential witnesses, such as the 300 remaining prisoners, were either gassed or fed poison, while the 600 Chinese and Manchurian labourers were shot. Ishii ordered every member of the group to disappear and take the secret to the grave. Potassium cyanide vials were issued for use in case the remaining personnel were captured. Skeleton crews of Ishii's Japanese troops blew up the compound in the final days of the war to destroy evidence of their activities, but many were sturdy enough to remain somewhat intact. American Grant of Immunity Among the individuals in Japan after its 1945 surrender was Lieutenant Colonel Murray Sanders. Sanders was a highly regarded microbiologist and a member of America's Military Center for Biological Weapons. Sanders' duty was to investigate Japanese biological warfare activity. At the time of his arrival in Japan, he had no knowledge of what Unit 731 was. Until Sanders finally threatened the Japanese with bringing the Soviets into the picture, little information about biological warfare was being shared with the Americans. The Japanese wanted to avoid prosecution under the Soviet legal system, so the next morning after he made his threat, Sanders received a manuscript describing Japanese involvement in biological warfare. Sanders took this information to General Douglas MacArthur, who was the supreme commander of the Allied powers responsible for rebuilding Japan during the Allied occupations. MacArthur struck a deal with Japanese informants. He secretly granted immunity to the physicians of Unit 731, including their leader, in exchange for providing America, but not the other wartime allies, with their research on biological warfare and data from human experimentation. American occupation authorities monitored the activities of former unit members, including reading and censoring their mail. The Americans believed that the research data was valuable and did not want other nations, particularly the Soviet Union, to acquire data on biological weapons. The Tokyo War Crimes Tribunal heard only one reference to Japanese experiments with poisonous serums on Chinese civilians. This took place in August 1946 and was instigated by David Sutton, assistant to the Chinese prosecutor. The Japanese Defence Council argued that the claim was vague and uncorroborated and it was dismissed by the tribunal president, Sir William Webb, for lack of evidence. The subject was not pursued further by Sutton, who was probably unaware of Unit 731's activities. His reference to it at the trial is believed to have been accidental. Separate Soviet Trials Although publicly silent on the issue at the Tokyo trials, the Soviet Union pursued the case and prosecuted 12 top military leaders and scientists from Unit 731 and its affiliated biological war prisons, Unit 1644 in Nanjing and Unit 100 in Changchung, in the Khabarovsk war crimes trials. 
Among those accused of war crimes, including Julian warfare, was General Otozo Yamada, commander-in-chief of the million-man Kwantung army occupying Manchuria. The trial of the Japanese perpetrators was held in Khabarovsk in December 1949. A lengthy, partial transcript of trial proceedings was published in different languages the following year by the Moscow Foreign Languages Press, including an English-language edition. The lead prosecuting attorney at the Khabarovsk trial was Lev Smirnov, who had been one of the top Soviet prosecutors at the Nuremberg trials. The Japanese doctors and army commanders who had perpetrated the Unit 731 experiments received sentences from the Khabarovsk court ranging from 2 to 25 years in a Siberian labor camp. The United States refused to acknowledge the trials, branding them communist propaganda. The sentences doled out to the Japanese perpetrators were unusually lenient by Soviet standards, and all but one of the defendants returned to Japan in the 1950s, with the remaining prisoner committing suicide in his cell. In addition to the accusations of propaganda, the US also asserted that the trials were to only serve as a distraction from the Soviet treatment of several hundred thousand Japanese prisoners of war. Meanwhile, the USSR asserted that the US had given the Japanese diplomatic leniency in exchange for information regarding their human experimentation. The accusations of both the US and the USSR were true, and it is believed that the Japanese had also given information to the Soviets regarding their biological experimentation for judicial leniency. This was evidenced by the Soviet Union building a biological weapons facility in Sverdlovsk using documentation captured from the Unit 731 in Manchuria. Official Silence During the American Occupation of Japan As above, during the United States occupation of Japan, the members of Unit 731 and the members of other experimentational units were allowed to go free. On the 6th of May 1947, Douglas MacArthur, the Supreme Commander of the Allied Forces, wrote to Washington in order to inform it that additional data, possibly some statements from Ishii, can probably be obtained by informing Japanese involved that information will be retained in intelligence channels and will not be employed as war crimes evidence. One graduate of Unit 1644, Masami Kideoka, continued to perform experiments on unwilling Japanese subjects from 1947 to 1956. He performed experiments whilst he was working for Japan's National Institute of Health Sciences. He infected prisoners with rickettsia and infected mentally ill patients with typhus. As the chief of the unit, Shiro Ishii was granted immunity from prosecution for war crimes by the American occupational authorities because he had provided human experimentation research materials to them. From 1948 to 1958, less than 5% of the documents were transferred onto microfilm and stored in the US National Archives before they were shipped back to Japan. And with that, this concludes the three-part series on Unit 731. Thank you again for listening, and stand by for future episodes. This concludes today's episode. As always, there is a Wikipedia link to today's topic in the show notes. I hope that you enjoyed the episode today, and I ask that you leave a five-star rating wherever you listen to the podcast. 
Please share this episode and previous episodes with your friends, family, and anyone that will listen. Thank you all for the continual support.